We're looking today in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 46 through 56, studying together today the Song of Mary. This morning we're going to uh, pause here to consider the Christmas story through the experience of Mary, and tonight when we come together we'll consider the Christmas story through the experience of Joseph, uh, but tonight looking at uh, the Song of Mary in Luke chapter 1. The song begins in verse 46. I'm going to back up just for context and begin reading uh, in verse 39, but we'll be looking today uh, in verses 46 through 56, and you can find that on page 856 of our CART Bibles. Before we go to the Lord uh, and His Word, let us go to Him in prayer again. Please pray with me. Oh, gracious Lord and God, thank You for this Word of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gospel message that he is the one who has come into the world through the womb of the virgin who has been resurrected after the crucifixion and has ascended to sit at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. O Lord, we pray uh, that the truth of Jesus Christ and his incarnation would be alive in our hearts today, that we would rejoice in the one who has come. We would worship you through your Son, and by the power of your Spirit. Help us to do that today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hear now God's Word, beginning in verse 39 of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name." And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Ascends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. Well, folks, today uh, is Christmas Eve. If you didn't know already, that means tomorrow's the big day. Uh, Maybe in your household, like in my household, you've been counting down to Christmas. Maybe you've got one of those Advent calendars, and each day you rip open another uh, cardboard compartment and get yourself a tiny little gift just to tide you over until Christmas. Uh, As part of my ministry to you today, I want to help you be prepared for tomorrow. 
Specifically, I, I want to help the children to be prepared for tomorrow. So all you adults, I give you my permission to tune me out for at least the next 30 seconds or so. I, I want to talk just to the kids. All right, kids. Nobody else is listening. It's just you and me, all right? You need to know, if you haven't figured it out yet, that tomorrow your parents are expecting a reaction from you. Tomorrow you're going to open your gifts. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be an iPad. It could be a pair of socks. Your parents want the same reaction, no matter the gift. Just two little words, thank you. That's it. That's all they're looking for. Now, you know that your parents are looking for that reaction because for years they've been trying to get that reaction out of you for other people. Every special occasion when somebody's given you a present on your birthday or at Christmas, there they were standing over your shoulder saying, what do you say? And you know what you say. You say, thank you. There is a proper way to receive a gift. There is an improper way to receive a gift. Now, you adults, you can come back and, and listen again now. Now, the really joyous thing about giving gifts and seeing gifts be given is to see that thank you reaction when it hasn't been practiced or it hasn't been solicited. When thankfulness simply bubbles up out of your heart and it can't be contained. And that's what this song of Mary is, really. It's thankfulness to the Lord that cannot be contained, that simply bubbles up and out of Mary and she bursts into song as though she can't help herself. This wasn't something that was solicited. It was genuine. And it really is quite remarkable, isn't it? Here's this girl. I mean that explicitly. She's a girl. Not a woman yet. She is, some say, maybe as young as 12. Others maybe as old as 17. But she is a girl, a child. And she has received something wonderful wasn't something that she was looking for. wasn't something she was expecting. But she had received something. This unfathomably wonderful gift. Really, she had received a gift that through her would be given not only to her, but to many other people. And she can't help but give thanks to the Lord. It bursts forth from her. Now, this song of Mary is most famously known as the Magnificat. That's taken from the first line of the Latin translation of this song. Magnificat anima mea dominum. My soul magnifies, that's the idea, to magnify the Lord, to make much of him, to enlarge his character. Of course, you can't make God any bigger than he already is. Our praise doesn't make God any bigger, just like shaking our fist in his direction won't make him any smaller. Our praise doesn't change how big God is, but our praise does change how big we see God to be. Our praise won't change God, but it does change us. And it has an effect on how others around us see how big God is. I was raised in a church where we didn't sing every week from a hymnal. We used an overhead projector. It wasn't one of these fancy ones that we have now that you hook up to a PowerPoint presentation. Uh, it was that light box with the mirror and the magnifying glass on the top, and it sat in the front row, and you always knew who was in charge of the transparencies that week because they were the only person sitting in the front row. And it was their job to make sure that the song sheets were gathered and they were in order, and they would stand there as we sang, and they would move them along because all the words were being put up on the wall. They were being magnified so we could all join in together and praise with one voice. That is what Mary is doing. This is not private praise. 
She is not alone in her secret prayer closet. She is standing there with her cousin Elizabeth, both of these women standing on the precipice of motherhood for the first time. And all the fear and all the joy and all the excitement and the trepidation gives way to one song. And Mary looks at her cousin and she says, let me tell you how wonderful the Lord is. Won't you rejoice with me as I make much of the Lord and his greatness? That's what she's doing today. And what better could we do than to join together in making much of the Lord and of his greatness together with Mary, the mother of Jesus? We're going to do that today as we look through here. And I think there are a few themes that help us to make much of God's greatness. That's what worshiping hearts always do. We're going to see a few themes. The first theme in this song is the greatness of God's mercy. The greatness of God's mercy. Now, if there is a main theme to the Magnificat, mercy is it. It shows up from beginning to end. It shows up sometimes in the words themselves. The word shows up in verses 50 and 54. And both times when the word shows up, it's talking about mercy for other people. Verse 50, God's mercy is available to all who fear him. Doesn't matter what generation you are, doesn't matter where you are, God's mercy is available to many, to others, to all who fear him. And in verse 54, God has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. This is mercy categorically. Israel is the representative of his line and his family and and God's chosen people. And Mary's talking about God's mercy for others when this word shows up. But even when the word isn't there, the idea is everywhere in this song. You notice this song really is telling of Mary's personal experience of God's mercy. Something she has received and something that has been done for her and to her. This is important because in many ways this song is a response to what was just spoken about her. We read those verses for context and we saw that Mary showed up at Elizabeth's house and Elizabeth pronounced a threefold blessing. Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Blessed is she who believed in the Lord. And she was right to say those things. I know Protestants can get a little touchy about that sometimes. There are a few ex-Catholics, and we don't want to go too far with the Roman church and go into all these heresies and the ideas that Mary is this exalted queen of heaven and all these things. We don't have to go that far, but we need to make sure that we don't overreact against that and make too little of this godly woman. She was blessed of the Lord. When Elizabeth pronounced this blessing, she was speaking by the Holy Spirit. But no, Mary wasn't perfect. She wasn't sinless. She can't save you. You ought not to pray to her, but she was blessed of the Lord. She was a godly woman chosen by God and given a role for the way that he was interacting with his people and coming into the world. And Mary is blessed. And her quiet obedience ought to be an example to Christians everywhere of what discipleship is supposed to look like. Mary was a blessed woman. And yet her response to Elizabeth shows that she cannot think of her own blessing without thinking of the one who has blessed her. She cannot simply receive the gifts from the Lord without returning thanks to the giver. Above all else, Mary knows herself to be unworthy of the mercy that's been given to her. She calls herself a servant in verse 48. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Now that word shows up also in verse 54 in our translations, but in the original it's a completely different word. This is handmaiden. It's feminine, but it's also a different word. 
And she's talking about personal experience. She is humbled beneath the Lord. She is the servant of the Lord. She is the one who is unworthy of all the gifts and the blessing that he is giving to her. She too needs a savior. And she returns her thanks to him. She received this charity of God even though she has done nothing to deserve it. And folks, that is always our problem with mercy. Maybe when you think of mercy, the image that comes to mind is when you were a child and you were being pinned on your back by an older sibling sitting on your chest and demanding that you say uncle. Maybe you were that older sibling. I don't know. Maybe when you think of mercy, you think of all those people who receive all that change that are thrown into all of those red buckets and you quietly thank the Lord that you don't need anybody else's charity. Mercy is a dirty word in our culture. It points to those people who are incapable of getting things for themselves by ingenuity and hard work and the sweat of their brows. And we don't like mercy or charity. We don't, have to, we don't like to have to be helpless and to acknowledge our helplessness. Mercy is that sinking feeling that happens when your neighbor gives you a Christmas gift and you were unprepared, and the only thing you can say is, I'm sorry, I, I didn't get you anything. You see, we want to put God in our debt. We don't want his mercy. We want to work our way in his favor. We want him to give us rewards, not gifts. We want him to give us payment for good behavior and religious uh, credits that we've built up over time and achievements that we've made. We want God's goodness to be a reward, but God doesn't work that way. Salvation doesn't work that way. The gospel doesn't work that way. Christ came to save those who are helpless. He came to give life to dead men and dead women who cannot resuscitate themselves. And if you are going to acknowledge God's great mercy, it begins by acknowledging that you come to him as a servant or you come not at all. This is the theme that Mary had. God's great mercy. And her heart overflowed to praise him for coming to us. Now, verse 49 helps us in this regard of acknowledging uh, that God's goodness is really a mercy. It says in verse 49, He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And that comes a little bit out of left field. Sure, God is mighty. Sure, he's good. Sure, he's merciful. Sure, he's strong. But holy? What is that doing there? And it sort of stands out a little bit. Well, don't forget that holiness has implications in Scripture. The Bible calls things holy when they are pure when they're set aside for some particular use, when they are set aside and separated from what is profane. Holiness is the language of separating the common from the uncommon. And the God of the Bible is holy, holy, holy. He is utterly separate, utterly pure, utterly other than we are. And that means if we will experience His goodness, it can only move in one direction. He is utterly unapproachable by men and women of unclean hands and unclean lips and unclean hearts. And so his love and his mercy is always condescending love. His goodness is always charity. His blessings are always gifts and never payment. 
God blesses us by giving us the kind of mercy that has to overcome our unholiness and our iniquity and our unworthiness. And his mercy is the person of Jesus. He came to overcome our unholiness and our iniquity and our unworthiness. He came to be the gift for helpless sinners, and Mary knew that. She knew that God's mercy and his kindness is always undeserved. And she worshipped because she knew the God who is great in mercy. That's the first thing we see in this, this song. And really it runs from beginning to end. That God has a great mercy. The second theme in this song is a great reversal. A great reversal. Now it shows up in the center of Mary's song. But she speaks of the God who scatters proud hearts with his strong arms. The God who raises up those who are humble and pulls down those who are mighty. The one who feeds those who are hungry and the one who uh, sends away those who are rich and full. And he does great things for those who fear him, but at the same time he seems to delight in exposing just how foolish it is to trust in anything other than his grace and his kindness. God seems to love turning the things that our world loves on its head and the power structures and the things that we think are impressive. He loves to reverse them to show just how powerful he is. It is the constant and counterintuitive theme in Scripture that when God shows up, He scatters all the things that mankind thinks are important. Things like power and pride and money and position and schemes and ladder climbing and self-promotion. They're all nothing and counted as nothing when the Lord shows up to save His people. We see it everywhere in Scripture. Jeremiah chapter 9. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom... Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. All these things that we think are so wonderful in wisdom and power and riches, but what are we to boast in? Let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. You see that reversal there, don't you? This is how God shows himself in the glory of reversing all of these things that mankind thinks are important and will give us security in this life. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 1, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Jesus said it in Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the pure and the merciful and the peacemakers. Blessed are all those nice guys and girls who always seem to finish last in the Lord because there are many who are last who will be first and the first will be last. And God seems to delight in reversing the power structures of the world and showing up with a great reversal. That's what he loves to do to show his might and his power. And you know what this means, don't you? It means that God is not beholden to systemic, unchanging injustice that seems to follow humanity everywhere we go. That's what Mary was singing about. He's coming to do a new thing. What does the Lord say? Behold, I make all things new. And all things means all things. Things in heaven and things on earth. And he is able to overpower and overthrow all of those things that we think are so impressive in this world and we hang our security and our hopes on. And he says, no, 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 it's not about that. And I'm outside of that. 
is the God who protects the fatherless and cares for the widow and loves the sojourner. God loves the meek and the lowly and those who are in the perfect position to call out for His mercy because they recognize their helplessness. Now when we read these verses and these promises of reversal, there are two separate and opposite errors really that we need to avoid when we look at these things. One error on one side of the spectrum is to take all of these promises and all of this language about hunger and riches and all of these things and to make it uh, purely physical. To say that all Mary's talking about are material poverty and physical hunger and political oppression. And yes, the Bible cares about those things. But we miss the point if we think that God's primary objective with humanity is to eradicate hunger make sure that we're all safe, to make sure that everybody has the same opportunities in the world. Early in the 20th century, many Christian churches began teaching that this was all that it means to do the work of God in the world. That all you need to, to be a Christian and to do God's work and to further his kingdom is just to be compassionate, just to help those who are in need, nothing more. And so they did away with all the spiritual realities of the gospel. Doctrines of sin and salvation. The idea that man can be reconciled to God. Missionary work was funneled away from evangelism and toward building infrastructure, getting rid of poverty and all these sorts of things. And the hope was that it would make Christianity attractive to the world. Unbelievers will see what Christians are doing and man, they'll come into the church in droves. They will flock to Christianity. It'll be the best thing that ever happened. And yet we are surrounded in New England by all these failed churches. But the opposite thing has happened. Because when so-called Christian churches remove the Christian gospel from what they're doing, the church is redundant. The church has nothing to offer to the world if we remove the spiritual realities of the gospel and the hope that we proclaim. Because people can find that anywhere and on any street corner. And if we remove spiritual realities, the church becomes expendable. God's a fairy tale, and Christmas is meaningless. What's the message of Christmas? Well, it's that there was a Savior who came in humble circumstances. He was one of those poor who came into the world, and he ministered with no place to lay his head. And at the end of his earthly life, he was crucified by proud men in positions of authority. If the story stops there, if all that his life and death can offer us are a few filled bellies and multitudes on a mountainside who have seen and had their bellies filled, if that's all it is, we better do something else better with our time. We cannot reduce these things merely to physical realities, but neither can we reduce these things to merely spiritual realities, and that is maybe the error that falls closer to where we find ourselves. The truth is that Jesus came physically doing exactly what Mary prophesied in her song. He did feed the multitudes. He did have compassion on the outcast. He spoke truth to power, and all of it was meant to be the external adornment, the ornaments, if you will, on this spiritual kingdom that he was proclaiming. And so far as we are able, we will never feed multitudes on a hillside with bread from heaven. It, it won't happen. But so far as we are able, 
As believers in Christ and followers of Christ, we ought to model and follow after His compassion on the poor and the oppressed and the downtrodden as well as we can. Don't forget that Jesus saved His harshest rebukes for the hypocrites of His day who fooled themselves with the idea that it was possible to be inwardly spiritual and not externally compassionate. When it came to religious observances, they were fastidious to a T, and their hearts were closed to the needs that were around them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You think that tithing, mint, and dill, and cumin, and yet you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, and mercy, and faithfulness. We cannot separate the spiritual bounty of God's kingdom from physical compassion that ought to accompany it everywhere it goes. Many, I'm sorry, Mary rejoiced that the Lord was working reversal in the world through her son Jesus. And all those who have tasted of God's mercy will also rejoice that he allows us to be a part of this work in the world, both in spiritual realities, proclaiming the, the gospel of Jesus Christ and salvation through him and him alone, and in physical realities. It's part of the rejoicing that Mary had, and it ought to be part of the rejoicing in the work that we have in the church as well, this idea of a great reversal. Now, finally, there is the theme of a great faithfulness. It shows up at the end, verses 54 and 55. Mary says he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now, Mary concludes her song by recognizing that the birth of her son, his coming into the world in a miraculous way, the miraculous conception of Jesus in the womb of the virgin, that had implications far beyond her own tiny little corner of Judea. This is something on a worldwide scale, a universal scale. God was doing something and proving something in the world. Long ago, he had promised to send a deliverer. He had chosen one man and his family, Abraham. And he had promised to bless Abraham and his family line, and through blessing Abraham, he would bring blessing to all the peoples of the world. And now, through Abraham's line, in Jesus, the promise was going to be fulfilled. And that means that when Jesus comes, it's proof that God is consistent. It's proof that the Lord can be trusted implicitly. It proves that nothing can stand in the way of God fulfilling his promises. Not scientific impossibilities. Not the humility of the people he's chosen for himself. Not all the history of human sin and rebellion. Nothing can stand in the way of God fulfilling his promises for his people because he is the God of a great faithfulness. This is what she praised the Lord for. The sovereign God has decreed that he will bring blessing through Jesus to his elect. And nothing can stand in the way. One of the interesting things about the Magnificat, about this song, is the way that it's become a target for lots of people who want to deny the truth of Scripture. Skeptics look at this song and they turn up their nose. Not in the way you might think. Not because it seems low and ridiculous. Rather, because it seems so exalted, so high, so 
full of theological depth and truth and reality, the way that all of these dots are connected from Abraham to Jesus, and the whole gospel message, in a sense, is wrapped up together, that here is the Savior coming. They look at this, and then they look at Mary, some peasant girl, uneducated in the Judean backcountry somewhere. And how could it possibly be that this young girl of 12 or 13 or 14 could put all this together? The scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders were not able to connect these things. And so how could it possibly be that Mary could do this? And no, they say, Scripture clearly isn't what you think Scripture is. Now, just for a moment, just for the sake of argument, put aside the reality of the Holy Spirit. I know that all of us would say, hey, that's how, right? Uh, without the Spirit, we are all blind, and that's true. It doesn't matter how many degrees and abbreviations we have after our name. Without the Spirit, none of us would connect the dots or see who Jesus is. We are all blind in our sin. Put that aside for a second. And think about what exactly Mary knew about the God of the Bible. It's quite possible she had never read the Scriptures for herself. It's quite possible she might not even have known how to read. But she was at least raised with the Psalter. Every Jew was raised singing the redemption songs of their people. And so for 13, 14 years maybe, she sat next to her mother, spinning wool, grinding grain, singing of God's redemption, looking forward to what God would do in his people. She'd certainly been to the synagogue, She'd heard the rabbis teach of God's work through the patriarchs and through godly women like Hannah. She'd learn to yearn together with the Jewish people for the Savior, the Messiah who was going to come, to set them free, the one they'd been praying for and longing for. She'd probably been to the temple and seen all the sacrificial system. And she was taught to pray and to believe however simply it might have been, and suddenly an angel shows up. And he brings a message that is full, chock full of Old Testament language. What does he say? Luke chapter 1, verse 33. I'm sorry, 31. Luke chapter 1, verse 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. He comes with this message, and then he sends her on a long walk. A three and a half day journey, some 80 or 100 miles, into the Judean hillside, in the mountain territory. What do you think Mary was doing for three and a half days while she was walking? She wasn't checking her Facebook feed, I'll tell you that much. She was praying, she was singing, she was connecting the dots of all that she knew about the God of covenant faithful promise. When she showed up at Elizabeth's house, it's a wonder they had time to greet one another at all. It's a wonder she didn't burst in, shouting at the top of her lungs, it's true, it's true, everything we've been praying about, everything we've been looking for, it's true and you can trust him. She knew. And yes, the Holy Spirit was working, but she knew because she saw the God who is faithful and her heart overflowed with worship for this great God who's sending his son in the person of Jesus Christ. And what else could she do? 
but make much of his greatness. Dear friends, what else can we do today? There's a promise back in verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. The God who is faithful to Mary is the God who is still faithful today. It doesn't matter where you find yourself or when you find yourself. So far removed from the Middle East 2,000 years ago, God's faithfulness and his mercy are still available for those who fear him, who recognize their helplessness, who cry out to their Savior, Jesus. And he fills our hearts, too, with his greatness, with his mercy and a longing for the reversal that he's working in the world. He fills us with a vision of his faithfulness, and what else can we do but make much of him? What else can we do but magnify him so that others will see and join in praise and worship together? Please join me in prayer. O Lord, our God of covenant faithfulness and promise, great Father of mercies, from whom all good gifts come down, you with whom there is no shifting or shadow or variation due to change, thank you for your faithfulness and your goodness. Thank you for your condescending love. Thank you for stooping low to where we are. The person of Jesus veiled in flesh, the Godhead. Thank you for coming to us and filling our hearts with the joy of Christ by the power of your Spirit. Oh Lord, we pray that you would make our hearts to overflow. That we would be so caught up in your greatness that we would speak much about you. That we would magnify your name together with one another. Thank you that as your people and as one body we can come to your table. Where we're reminded again of your faithfulness. And gracious Lord, we pray that you would meet us that you would fill us, that you would feed us, that you would keep us until that day when we see all of your promises fulfilled in Jesus. Amen.